Hey, if you get your Bibles, go ahead and open that up to um, the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. Um, feel free to get up, grab those. Those can be uh, your gift from us, um, and I hope you take it and use it. Anyways, we'll be in Acts chapter 6, um, continuing through Acts. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews and their widows, that their widows were not, that they that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will, but we will devote ourselves to to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. It's the word of God. Thanks, Hunter, for reading that for us. And thank you again for being here this morning to wrap up your spring break with us. I was kind of thinking... Perhaps there won't be many people there this morning. You know, it's spring break. <laughs> most of Jackson's out of town, right? As is most of our church leadership <laughs> celebrating spring break. So, uh, John, you asked me to share this morning. Uh, what was he thinking, right? I don't know who was crazier, him for asking or me for agreeing. But at any rate, here we are on Sunday the 18th, and we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, as Hunter mentioned. And our theme for the church this year is Spirit-Filled. And so we see that in Acts. For the first time, we see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in and on the believers in the book of Acts. And the author of the book, Luke, is writing to testify of God's great plan of salvation, that that plan of salvation has come in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension Jesus Christ. And it continues to unfold as the Spirit-filled church is formed and begins to take that message, the good news, to Jews and Gentiles alike all across the globe. An author that I like, Henrietta Mears, says that in the Gospels, we hear Christ's teachings. It's Jesus, His presence on earth, exalting and revealing the Father. And in the book of Acts, we see the effect of Christ's teachings on the Acts of the Apostles in the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Or you may even say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles in the early church. But here it's the presence of the Holy Spirit exalting and revealing Jesus. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen the ascension of Christ. We've seen the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We've seen incredible signs and wonders. We've seen the great boldness of the Apostles in proclaiming the message 
even in the midst of severe persecution to the point of imprisonment. We've seen the formation of the early church. We've seen immense growth in that church. We've tasted a bit of Christian community in that early church. And even more signs and wonders. All that in the first five chapters. So that brings us to where we left off. Chapter 6 today, we'll pick back up. Would you pray with me just for a moment? Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity uh, just to come and worship together this morning. We pray that you are open our hearts to hear and receive the words that you might have us hear and receive today. May it be to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So the first few verses in chapter 6 show, I think, a practical illustration of life in the early church. And as with any family made up of broken people, which we're all broken people, there was conflict. As you see uh, back in verse number 1, it says, In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who, who were from primarily outside of Palestine. They were Jews who had been dispersed and they grew up away from the roots of Israel. The Hebrews were native Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic. They were old school and they remained true to the old ways and traditions of Judaism. So during the the time of Alexander the Great, Greek culture permeated the, the known world at that time. So the Hellenistic Jews tended to adopt the Grecian ways of culture. Not only was it the language, but even things such as their dress, taste in foods, musical styles, even literature uh, were differences of these Greek-speaking Jews from the Hebraic-speaking Jews. So those differences tended to strain the two groups. And here in the early church in Jerusalem, we find both groups. So there are many festivals and and different special times of the year that folks would travel to Jerusalem from outside uh, that region to celebrate. And sometimes folks would just remain in Jerusalem and stay. And that's probably where some of these Hellenistic Jews who are in the early church here at Jerusalem, uh, how they got there perhaps. But we do see kind of almost two different classes. And some scholars say that the Hebrew-believing Jews tend to look down on the Grecian believers. They might have thought of them as compromising. Some even say as far to think of them as second-class Jews. And then as we see in verse 1, to further the issue, now the Greek-speaking Widows are being neglected in the daily food lines. So there's tension here. You see the conflict, a language and cultural barrier that has led to not only conflict, but perhaps the first crisis in the early church. So folks, the church is not immune to conflict. There are challenges in ministry. Broken people working with other broken people tend to have from time to time disagreements, differences of opinion, how some things should be handled, perhaps even discrimination and pride. But as is his nature, God can take our brokenness and make something beautiful. As for the crisis in the early church, someone told me one time that the Chinese word for crisis is two symbols, one for danger and one for opportunity. So if we pick back up uh, in chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples 
and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and a few other fine fellows that Hunter did a good job pronouncing their names. <laughs> and they said before those, these men, the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. So note here, the apostles say it's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And at first glance, that might sound a little haughty, I thought. But that's not really what's going on here. What's happening is the apostles in wisdom realize their specific call and gift to preach the word. And they realize that that calling had to be protected and guarded. It's not that serving in the bread lines was any less important. It's that the apostles can't do both effectively. They knew what their gifting was and they realized the need for others in the body to step up and serve. So what was the solution? The apostles acted decisively and with wisdom. And they called together the church. They again defined their role. And they charged the church with appointing several qualified men to handle the task at hand. I think the solution did two things. I think it highlighted a diversity in calling and gifts. And I think it established a new teamwork in the body of Christ. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are part of the body of Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as has been baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And your local church, this immediate body, this community of believers is where we are to serve alongside with each other. And Jesus is the head of this body head of the church. As we've heard John, you say many times, the local church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 19. I think it will be on the screen. It's a little long, but just bear in there. We'll read it slow together, but it's important. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, We were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And it goes on in verse 27 to say, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So let's do a quick exercise, if you don't mind. Take your foot, your right foot or left, whichever is your dominant. Just raise it off the ground a little bit and begin to rotate it clockwise. Ooh, that kind of feels good. All right, now take your index finger 
and begin to draw the number six in the air. And notice the direction of your foot change. I know some of you are going to be the rest of the day trying to figure this out. Did you get it? It is impossible for you to rotate your foot in the opposite direction that your finger goes. Isn't that cool? So God has pre-programmed our brain with our body parts. He's placed all the parts of the body just together, just as he wanted. Each part to work in unison with the others. So each of us is important, and each of us has an important role to play in the body of Christ. You don't have to have a degree from seminary to have an impact in the body of Christ. You don't have to be a preacher to play an important role in the church. There are no spectators. We are all participators. We're to be about doing ministry and service, not just consuming it. It's not about someone doing everything. It's about everyone doing something. What's the greatest resource of our church or any church? Some might think right off, well, money. How much money can we allocate to a particular program or service? Some may say facilities. If we only had more facilities or bigger buildings, we could offer more programs. But the greatest resource of our church is not money or facilities. Next to the power of the Holy Spirit, the greatest resource of this church is us. It's you and me. We are the church. I think about this as a kid. You remember this, right? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors, and here are the... It's very true, even now. We're the greatest resource of this church, and I believe that God has gifted each one of us with talents to be used in edifying the body. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Romans 12, 4 through 8 is another important passage. A little wordy again, but follow along. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one and another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We each have spiritual gifts to be used in service to the body. Each gift is different but vital to the overall health of the body. Just as the members of the body work together to make the whole, so does it take the different gifts each individual has to help the body function as it should to the glory of God. Now, a whole entire sermon series could be devoted to spiritual gifts, and I think we've had some small groups that have even gone through uh, that study over the years. But I want us to know this morning that each of us has been bestowed spiritual gifts. At least one. Each of you has at least one to serve and to share. And we need to be using those gifts for the glory of God in building up the body of Christ. Do you believe that you have gifts that are needed in the service of the body? Do you believe the Bible when it says that we're created in His image? 
that each of us is fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb. The very image of the creator himself is stamped on us. And in the very fabric of our being is woven these gifts and talents to be used in ministry. Ministry sometimes can be kind of a churchy word. It may even turn some of us off. But ministry at its core is simply and truly service. It's loving your neighbor. Our mission here at Bellwether is see, love, go. See a big God, which means know where you come from and realize the magnitude of what he has done for you out of his ultimate love. And then begin to understand how that realization affects the way that you live and relate to those around you. Love your neighbor means simply to serve the needs of others before your own, as was the example of Jesus. 1 John 4.8 says God is love. This means love begins and ends in God. He is love, the very essence of where it came from and what it is, and all the amazing manifestations of love that we enjoy. John 15.13 says no greater love than this that a man lay down his life for his brother. Isn't that the love that Jesus Christ has given to each of us? To go means go make disciples. Matthew 20:18, the Great Commission, our overarching call to service. Live the gospel so that those around you are constantly being built up to do the same. What can keep us from exercising our gifts or talents? What obstacles may hold you back from serving? I like to tell myself that I'm not adequate to do that or I'm not trained enough, or knowledgeable enough. I've been saying that a lot the last two weeks since, John, you asked me to share this one. (laughs) Oh, I don't belong in front of anyone. Or another one I like, I just don't have the time to do that right now. Maybe you say, I can't lead people. I don't know enough about the Bible to lead a small group. I can't pray in front of somebody else. That's not my calling. Introduce myself to welcome a visitor I've never seen before. Are you kidding me? You know, what strikes me just uh, about any reason or excuse that I can come up with has a big fat I or me right in the middle of it. The focus is squarely on me. And I believe that that's just a lie that we buy into. The ability to serve and even the power to do that has nothing really to do with us. That ability and the power to do it comes right from God and it's truly about Him when you get down to it. So go back and read these verses even later today and think about what gifts, what talents you have that you might be able to serve in this body. Someone told me one time that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And I believe that God wants to use our individual gifts and talents to serve each other's needs in a way that reflects his nature in a way that shows his love to those watching around the world. Do you believe there are folks watching Christians, believers around the world, waiting to see if we live out what we say? John 13.35 says, And they'll know we are Christians by our love. I think the world takes notice of the supernatural. When they see us loving and serving in unity, putting others' needs ahead of ourselves, reaching out in grace and mercy that can only come from God. 
in the midst of dawning circumstances and even persecution as many around the globe endure, forgiving one another in a way that is unfamiliar to this world. Has anyone here experienced true forgiveness? On the other side of the coin, have you ever been the one that had to extend forgiveness? Perhaps to someone who absolutely didn't deserve it. Where did the power come from to do that? When you're part of something that can only happen because of God's power, people take note. Here in Acts chapter 6, do you think the world was taking note of the early church? The end of our story this morning in verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, these were the old school, hardcore, hardliner, traditionalists. Even the priests were becoming obedient. Up to this point, they had only been obedient or attempted to be obedient to the law. And now, they're attracted to this faith. To this Jesus who offers freedom from the law, forgiveness of sins, and even the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who reveals truth and equips for service. That is supernatural, folks, to me. And that's the gospel message for us this morning. You know, I think about uh, the late Billy Graham and his recent passing uh, and the crusades that he led across the globe. If you've ever been to one of those, anybody been to one or seen one on television perhaps, it was mesmerizing. What about it made it so incredible and so impactful? It was a simple man yielded to the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news, and people responded. I think similar to what we've seen here in Acts with these early disciples, simple, uneducated men, yet yielded to the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news, and people responded. In both cases, the Holy Spirit moved, and the world took notice. Now, you may not be called to be the next Billy Graham, but you may be called to serve on our Connect team, or in our children's ministry, perhaps be a Sunday school teacher here or a prayer warrior for this body of believers, or a small group leader, or a servant in missions, maybe even as a deacon, or simply an encourager in the faith to those around you. Let me close with this question. If we believe we are part of the body of Christ, and the scriptures tell us that each of us has something vital to offer in service, a unique gift or function, that individually helps to make the whole. Let me ask this question. What is this body missing if you're not serving? If I'm not serving? What important function is not happening or what needs not being met because we're not yielding to the Holy Spirit? Billy Graham once said, the highest form of worship is unselfish Christian service. And I believe that a spirit-filled church will be a serving church. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your plan of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ and for your church. And I pray we'll evermore surrender to your Holy Spirit as we seek to love, 
and to serve those around us to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.